Welcome to the April 7th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we'll first cover a research article demonstrating the striking contribution of neighborhood disadvantage to racial and ethnic disparities in survival in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. The second research article provides a model for understanding how disruption of the adult globin promoter may alleviate promoter competition, thereby reactivating fetal gamma globin gene expression. We will close with a research article showing that CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy provides durable remissions in patients with relapsed or refractory ALL across cytogenetic categories, including those patients with high-risk cytogenetics. Let's start with the article entitled, Structural Racism is a Mediator of Disparities in Acute Myeloid Leukemia Outcomes. The first author is Ivy Abraham of the University of Chicago Medicine in Gaul's Memorial Hospital in Harvey, Illinois. In this study, Abraham and co-authors demonstrate that census tract measures, and to a lesser extent, treatment patterns and ICU admissions, are mediators of observed disparities in leukemia survival. As background, we know that numerous studies have shown that racial and ethnic disparities are associated with poor outcomes among patients with AML. However, few of these studies have specifically studied racism as a contributing factor. In addition to interpersonal racism, where one individual discriminates against another, there is also structural racism, which refers to discriminatory systems, laws, and institutions that confer preferential access to goods and services, opportunities, rights, and power along racial lines. A widely studied form of structural racism is neighborhood segregation, or the physical separation of races by residential area. In the current study, Abraham and co-authors use census tract data to assess structural racism and its impact on survival among patients with AML treated at six urban institutions in the Chicago area. The authors say that while census tract data is a narrow indicator of structural racism, their study represents an initial attempt to empirically study this phenomenon as a mediator of inequities in leukemia outcomes. The study included adult patients with AML diagnosed between January 2012 and 2018 at six academic centers in the metropolitan Chicago area. All patients were geocoded to their residential census tract. Researchers developed tract-level measures that were used to assess structural racism, including the proportion of individuals in the tract who were non-Hispanic black or non-Hispanic white, as well as two measures they called tract disadvantage and tract affluence. Tract disadvantage was defined by the proportion of families or adults below the poverty line, receiving public assistance, unemployed, or in female-headed households. Tract affluence, by contrast, was defined by proportion of families or adults with higher incomes, college education, or employment in professional or managerial capacities. Discrete time survival analysis models were used to estimate associations of race, ethnicity, structural racism, patient and clinical factors, tumor biology, risk classification, and treatment with risk of death due to leukemia. Hazard ratios for racial or ethnic disparities in leukemia death were compared before and after controlling for structural racism, tumor biology, healthcare access, treatment patterns, comorbidities, and ICU admission during intensive induction chemotherapy. A total of 822 AML patients were included, of whom 40% were in minority populations. 
the median age was 62 years. Non-Hispanic black patients and Hispanic patients were more likely to be morbidly obese as compared to non-Hispanic white patients, while Hispanic patients were less likely to have a Charlson comorbidity index score above 2. The Hispanic and non-Hispanic black patients were more likely to live in less affluent, more disadvantaged areas as compared to non-Hispanic whites. The investigators found that the hazard of leukemia death was significantly higher for non-Hispanic black patients as compared to non-Hispanic white patients after controlling for age, gender, and study site, with a hazard ratio of 1.59 and a confidence interval of 1.15 to 2.22. Interestingly, nearly all of the AML survival disparity was mediated by the variables designed to serve as proxies for structural racism namely the tract disadvantage and affluence, as well as the proportions of non-Hispanic black or white population in the tracts. In a model adjusted for age, gender, and hospital, AML death was more than 50% greater for non-Hispanic black patients as compared to non-Hispanic white patients, with a hazard ratio of 1.61. However, adjusting for tract socioeconomic status reduced this, quote, disparity hazard ratio, end quote, down to 1.04. Similarly, adjusting for tract structural racism in Hispanics reduced the disparity hazard ratio from 1.20 to 0.96. By contrast, tumor biology variables such as prognostic score did not mediate racial and ethnic disparities. While treatment type mediated about half of disparities for non-Hispanic black and Hispanic patients as compared to non-Hispanic white patients. Meanwhile, healthcare access and ICU admissions had small impacts in terms of mediating disparities. In a commentary, Lena Weinstone of the Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center in San Francisco, California, said this study demonstrates a striking contribution of neighborhood to survival disparities between non-Hispanic white and non-Hispanic black patients with AML. Weinstone said the investigators had taken a critical first step toward addressing the sources of disparities in hematology, which is identifying the root of segregation and naming structural racism. Weinstone added that these findings need to be validated in a broader population using additional measures of structural racism. It would also be interesting to learn how cumulative exposure to structural racism over time translates into disease manifestations. Ultimately, structural solutions are needed to address the root causes of inequities and hematologic malignancies. In the meantime, recognizing structural racism as a foundational root cause of health disparities is a first step toward shifting the conversation. The next article is entitled, Disrupting the Adult Globin Promoter Alleviates Promoter Competition and Reactivates Fetal Globin Gene Expression. The first author is Sarah Topfer of the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. In this research article, Topfer and co-authors provide a model for understanding how promoter competition may play a role in the switching of hemoglobin production during development. Hemoglobin gene switching refers to the process by which the fetal gamma globin genes HBG1 and HBG2 are silenced around the time of birth and replaced by the adult beta globin genes, primarily HBB. However, fetal hemoglobin does not switch off in the benign disorder, termed hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, or HPFH, and these individuals continue to make large amounts of fetal hemoglobin throughout life. HPFH is sometimes associated with point mutations in the fetal globin gene promoters that disrupt the binding of specific repressors. 
However, HPFH is also associated with a range of deletions within the beta-globin locus that are all located downstream of the fetal HBG2 gene. There are a number of theories as to how these downstream deletions might increase expression of fetal gamma-globin genes, but no unifying theory. Thus, the aim of the present research article is to better understand how the deletions associated with HPFH lead to persistence of fetal hemoglobin production. A related condition called delta-beta thalassemia was also studied. This disorder is also associated with elevated fetal hemoglobin levels and also characterized by large deletions downstream from the HBG genes. In a systematic analysis focused on these conditions, the investigators first listed all naturally occurring deletions associated with significant increases in postnatal expression of fetal hemoglobin. This included 13 known HPFH deletions and 23 additional delta-beta thalassemia deletions. By comparing breakpoints, investigators identified a core region of approximately 1,100 base pairs that was common to all deletions in this group. Notably, this core region contained the promoter and first exon of the adult HBB gene. This region harbored transcription factor binding sites for KLF1, NFY, and Tata box binding protein. Altogether, investigators said, this finding was consistent with earlier conjecture that HBB plays a part in deletional HPFH. The investigators also used CRISPR gene editing in the HUDEP2 urethroid cell line to delete or disrupt elements of the proximal HBB promoter. Nearly all modifications that reduced the activity of the HBB promoter impeded fetal HBG gene silencing, which resulted in increased fetal globin expression. Of considerable importance is the finding that deleting or impairing the HBB promoter also had an effect at the locus control region, or LCR, a strong upstream enhancer that mediates high-level expression of genes in the HBB cluster. Disrupting the HBB promoter redirected looping of the LCR from the adult HBB gene to the fetal HBG gene. These findings support a model in which the silencing of fetal HBG genes by the adult HBB promoter occurs in part due to competition for the locus control region. However, the underlying structures in which the competition occurs are complex and dynamic and deserving of further research. The authors note that their findings could have future therapeutic value, since persistently high levels of fetal hemoglobin are well known to ameliorate the symptoms of severe globin disorders, such as beta-thalassemia and sickle cell disease. Specifically, various strategies to reactivate fetal gamma-globin chain production could potentially be developed to treat these disorders. In a commentary on this research, Ross Hardison of the Pennsylvania State University said the investigators have provided, quote, strong evidence for a simple but compelling model of a role of promoter competition in the switching of hemoglobin production during development. Hardison agreed with the authors that controlling this switch to reactivate fetal hemoglobin production in adult urethroid cells could lead to promising new therapeutic strategies for sickle cell disease, beta-thalassemia, and other inherited hemoglobinopathies. The last article is Impacts of High-Risk Cytogenetics on Outcomes for Children and Young Adults Receiving CD19-Directed CAR T-Cell Therapy. The first authors are Allison Bars Leahy of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Caitlin J. Devine of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. For children and young adults with relapsed or refractory B-cell ALL, 
The introduction of CAR T-cell therapy has dramatically improved outcomes, including relapse-free survival rates that approach 60% at one year. However, it's uncertain whether high-risk cytogenetics influence outcomes in patients with ALL who receive CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. Initial case series suggested that patients with high-risk cytogenetics, such as rearrangements of the KMT2A or MLL gene, and certain other high-risk cytogenetic events were associated with inferior outcomes after CAR T-cell therapy. However, these associations were not seen in all studies. Thus, authors of the present research article sought to determine whether the efficacy of CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy varies depending on cytogenetic risk factors in a larger series of patients. Their retrospective outcomes analysis included children and young adults between 1 and 29 years of age with relapsed or refractory ALL. Of 236 total patients, 195 received Tisagenlik-Lucil, the CD19 CAR T-cell product from Novartis while the remaining 41 received HUCART-19, a humanized CD19 CAR T-cell product. Patients were classified based on their high-risk cytogenetic characteristic. KMT2A rearrangements, Philadelphia chromosome positive or pH-like subtype, hypodiploidy, or TCF3-HLF fusions were defined as high-risk. By contrast, IAMP21, IKZF1 deletion, and TCF3-PBX1 fusions were considered intermediate risk, while hyperdiploidy and ETV6-RUNX1 fusions were considered favorable risk cytogenetics. 231 out of the 236 patients had documentation of cytogenetic characteristics. Of that subset, 32% had high-risk lesions, the most common of which was KMT2A rearrangement, present in about one-third. Out of 15 patients diagnosed with ALL at one year of age or earlier, 13 had KMT2A rearrangements. Of the remaining patients, 12% met criteria for intermediate risk disease, 19% had favorable risk cytogenetics, and 37% had uninformative cytogenetics, meaning they had none of the lesions defined in this study. The rate of complete remission following CAR T-cell therapy was consistent, regardless of risk category. The CR rate at day 28 after infusions was 94% overall, with CR seen in 93% of the high-risk group, 86% of intermediate risk, 98% of favorable risk, and 97% of patients with uninformative cytogenetics. Likewise, there was no difference in event-free survival or relapse-free survival between the four subgroups. The two-year relapse-free survival was 63% in the high-risk patients, 59% in intermediate risk, 61% in favorable risk, and 55% in the uninformative group. However, patients with pH-positive ALL did have a significantly higher two-year relapse-free survival, at 88%, versus 57% for all other patients. A similar trend was seen in patients with pH-like ALL, though this did not reach statistical significance. Lastly, overall survival was also not significantly different between groups, though some differences were observed related to individual cytogenetic findings. The two-year overall survival was 70% for high-risk, 66% for intermediate, 78% for favorable, and 79% for uninformative groups. In patients with KMT2A rearrangement, probability of survival was significantly lower, with a two-year OS of 59% versus 76% for all other patients. 
There was also a trend toward significantly improved overall survival in patients with pH-positive ALL, but no such association for pH-like ALL. In multivariate analyses, KMT2A rearrangement was associated with a 2.6-fold increase in risk of death, while specifically in the 13 patients with KMT2A rearranged infant leukemia, the risk of all-cause death increased by 3.6-fold. In a commentary, Michael Zwan and Frisco Kalkoen of Princess Maxima Center, Utrecht, Netherlands, and Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, Netherlands, said this study shows that standard cytogenetic risk stratification for B-cell ALL is no longer predictive once patients receive CAR T-cell therapy. Conversely, this means that, with the exception of KMT2A rearrangements and the Philadelphia chromosome, the efficacy of CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy does not appear to be impacted by currently known cytogenetic abnormalities seen in patients with B-cell ALL. According to Zwan and Kalkoen, this supports further study of CAR T-cell therapy in patients with very high risk of relapse, as defined by cytogenetic abnormalities, as is being studied as part of the ITCC-059 study in collaboration with the International Study for Treatment of High-Risk Childhood Relapsed ALL. Overall, the present study indicates that with the CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapies Tisagenlec-Lucil and HUCART-19, durable remissions can be achieved even among patients with high-risk cytogenetics. For the future, further research efforts are needed to develop prediction models for relapse risk following CAR T-cell therapy and to develop new treatment strategies that could reduce the risk of relapse for these patients. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.